This is Inside the Box. Welcome, listeners. This is Trevor Barrett, and I am here delighted to be joined by my good friend, my partner in podcasting, David Blakesley. David, how are you doing this morning? It's a beautiful day in Michigan, and I'm feeling pretty energized and uh, pretty excited to start a, yet another new project with you, Trevor. It's uh, <laughs> it's good. You know, we've 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 done a lot of podcasting over the years. We've had a little bit of a break from our regular partnership on the Eclipse Viewer, but here we are back at it. Uh, it's a really yes. fun. Uh, I'm anticipating some good times. Well, I know I'm going to have a good time. I hope I hope you do. I hope listeners do. I can't imagine that it will be any different, especially given the riches that we have to discuss. Because this is new, uh, you may have heard our episode zero that explains what we're about, but we are here in this podcast series to discuss the box sets that Criterion has released in whatever order we decide to go through them, but today we are starting with three silent classics by Joseph von Sternberg or as he was known for most of his youth, Joe Sternberg. <laughs> yes. And I got to admit, you know, when I when I realized that the Joseph Vaughn and all of that was kind of just a, a made-up thing, I thought, wow, way to go, because you sure suck me in with that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> well, it's a, just kind of an interesting little, you know, emphasis on his ability to sort of create his own mythology. I mean, I think that's my intro takeaway, if you will, is, is how mythic and archetypal his films really seem to be. I mean, he's just got this incredible gift of composing memorable images and scenes and using facial expressions and lighting and atmosphere to make these really powerful impressions on, on the viewer. So, and I also like the idea that we're kind of getting this new series started by just going back to some old silent films. I mean, we're not going to be approaching this in my, you know, patented chronological uh, obsession there, but <laughs> but but it is kind of a nice sort of foundational set to talk about when we uh, sort of look at the whole panoply of, of box sets that Criterions have produced over the years. I kind of like this one as a starting point. Yeah, and we've had it for years on DVD probably came out in, what, 2008, 2009? I don't know. I think it was Some... 2010, actually. 2010? Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we got it just recently, last year, 2019, toward the end of the year, on Blu-ray. I-, I never had it on DVD, though. I had seen the films. I had never never bought the set, but it was one that I always had my eyes on, always hoped for an upgrade. Here we have it. So we not only are going to be talking about the films, we're also going to be talking about how this set feels, you know, just to have in your hands what it looks like, the art, the interior, the the book, the, you know, everything that we can think of, just to have a good conversation about something both of us get a lot of pleasure from, uh, these Criterion releases, and in particular these beautiful box sets that we do end-of-year best-of shows. These often are one, two, three. <laughs> Sometimes mm-hmm. we, we exclude them because of that. <laughs> right. uh, but but this one is certainly an amazing release. So David, th- this being our first, uh, first go-around, I think it might be fitting just to start with w- whatever thoughts you feel are good introduction thoughts before we jump into into all the all that we have to discuss this morning. 
Sure. Well, I'll kind of put my cards on the table. I've owned the DVD set for, you know, pretty much since it was first released. But up until this past week, I had never seen any of these movies. So my experience is just really almost the opposite. You had seen them. Apparently, I didn't know but that. You, you had seen them without actually having the disc. I, I owned the discs. And for most of their existence, they were kind of a hot commodity. They went out right. of print several years later. And I was a little surprised to find out, but I, I guess it makes some sense that this was the actually the very last Criterion release that came out exclusively in DVD, but not Blu-ray as far as their mainline, you know, spine-numbered series. Uh, the last spine number was L'Enfant's New by Maurice Pilat, but uh, apparently, you know, sometimes they will release films out of spine number order. So this was the last one, and then after that, everything else came out in Blu-ray and DVD editions. Uh, other than like you know some of the sets that came out during the dual format era, etc. But you know, so for a long time, this was kind of a you know kind of a bonus uh, markup on the secondary market because it wasn't at all clear that Criterion would get these back. And then lo and behold, last year it, it did come out as a nice Blu-ray box set. And I don't think they reissued the DVDs though, right? I think that's one of the little odd trivia bits is that it's now only available in Blu-ray. And it looks like they did a very identical job. Even you know the book has the same number of pages, so only the only real differences are that there's a little bit of a you know compression because the Blu-rays are a smaller format. So I'm happy to have both. I, I the, the book for starters is just a gorgeous piece of work, 95 or almost 100 pages long, beautiful illustrations. It's just this great monochromatic, you know, kind of glossy presentation. So it is. It's a it's a beautiful set. Uh, whichever version you've got it in, and I was a little surprised that the Blu-ray, you know, came out, but you know, because I think you know these these films are not necessarily pristine looking. I mean, uh, but they're pretty beautiful for uh, as old as they are, and uh, the fact they don't have access to the original negatives can only do maybe a partial restoration. I think these are 2K transfers, but still, you know, the images are just just glorious, and and. Um, Really, the, the you know the set really just evoked an appreciation for for von Sternberg. I'll give him the full title there, uh, as as a real master filmmaker. Especially once you consider his his origins of of really, you know, a very much a self taught, self made artist who I think had a very profound effect uh, on on the future of cinema after after kind of his his prime time, his heyday. A couple of years ago, I think, is when the von Sternberg Dietrich set came out, and I did watch all of those films. I kind of went through a little bit of a marathon with that fairly soon after it was released. I would say my focus at that point was really on Dietrich and and you know just the incredible charisma and you know, magnetism of her as a performer, as an image, as a woman who really understood how to profoundly communicate with audiences through her appearance on screen and just the whole you know array of talents that she brought to it while I could sort of you know recognize while wow, these are very well-made films I, I don't think I was as focused on von Sternberg the auteur as I probably will be uh, whenever I go back to revisit those so I'll speak my piece here recognizing that there may be some listeners who are much more steeped in the the lore the mythology of of Joseph von Sternberg and maybe even have a much more you know technical appreciation of of his innovations you know, the way he did lighting and you know the the craft of filmmaking um, more than I do but I really I've emerged from this experience uh, uh, quite a fan of of his work and really you know getting a better grasp on on what he was about and just really intrigued by you know where 
where this inspiration came from. Uh, just his biography and his experiences leading up to it just make you wonder, boy, where did where did all this brilliance come from? He had an interesting life. You know, he traveled as you know, kind of you know, half Austrian, uh, half American in terms of his upbringing. But uh, he he sure had quite a vision, didn't he? Yeah, he did, and. I think he had a vision of himself and what he could <laughs> <Yeah>. do. <laughs> I think he burned a lot of bridges. But I'm going to step into something where I, I, I want to do this delicately because I don't mean to reduce Marlena Dietrich because I think she's fantastic and I, I completely understand and feel the same way about that Dietrich von Sternberg set. She's front and center and should be. Did watching these films maybe make it more understandable why von Sternberg would be fairly offensive in saying that he created her, that she is him more than her own, or, you know, at least, I don't know if he's meaning more than her own self, but did this give you any response to his claims that without him, there would be no Marlena Dietrich, and not just because he put her in his movies, but because he was the craftsman. He was the sculptor. He was the one who created what made her so stunning on film. I think you just have to recognize that he was a a master of hyperbole and the way he uses his rhetoric. In the book that I've kind of already referenced, there's a piece that is a quotation from his later in life autobiography called Fun in a Chinese Laundry, the title from an early silent comedy that he just sort of picked up and appropriated for the the title of his book. And it's a, it's a, you know, I don't know, 10, 15 page excerpt about Emil Jannings, the, the actor at, at one of the, uh, featured in, in the mm-hmm. last command and it's very droll and he's he's telling stories about how difficult it was for him to work with Yannings but you can just tell in in this the verbal style that he uses that he's he's taking sort of elements of both his and Yanning's characters and exaggerating them and, and having some fun with it and and I think so you have to sort of take some of his talk about Dietrich I, I don't think he's you know, I, I was I would not give him the credence to say that that that's literally true, or that he, you know, has this kind of arrogant ownership of Dietrich as kind of his creation. I think he's he's basically just hyping himself up, and you sort of have to take it with a bit of a grain of salt. And there's also another supplement here at the end of I think the Docks of New York. One of the supplements, or the main supplement on that disc, is an interview that he conducted with Swedish television in 1968, I mean, the year before he died. So you know he's an old man; he's like 74 years old there. But he's he's looking back, and he, there's a little segment in there where he's kind of touring some posters in the Swedish studio where where they're doing this interview and he's looking at some old photos that they've put up on a display uh, one of a photo of him and then some posters uh, where he starts reminiscing about his work with Dietrich and he talks a little bit about her career before he knew her and you know the fact as you know he recognized that she did recordings she did cabaret performances she did a lot of things that had nothing to do with Sternberg yeah and yet they they were partners and I think that's really the better way to look at it is that they both brought you know exceptional talent to this this working relationship I I feel underneath it all he has a a lot of respect for her and recognize that you you know even though he was already very successful director I, I think the Dietrich films are his sort of cinematic immortality even though this set here 
made before that is is also pretty epic and pretty pretty remarkable. Dietrich took him to a different level, even though that was kind of his pinnacle, and things collapsed pretty quickly after that. <laughs> uh, but they still really are kind of um, you know part of the the pantheon of of that era's films. So you know, I think you know maybe I'm projecting a little bit here, but I think underneath it all, he he recognized that he he rode her coattails just as much as she rode his. Yeah, I think that that's fair to say. And without without her, where would he where would he be in cinematic history? Mm-hmm. I do think that this trilogy of films would probably be enough to make us curious enough to have people out there who were like, oh, you got to see those uh, Von Sternberg films mm-hmm. uh, from the silent era. We don't know what happened to him, but those three were pretty great. Mm-hmm. I think these would be enough. But yeah, I agree. Those Dietrich films kind of make him next level immortal <laughs> yeah, <laughs> along yeah. with her uh, as kind of the person who, who, who because of his technical prowess, and because of his devotion to getting the lighting right and and to using air, I think is one thing that I noticed in the Dietrich films, but I see that he's doing it even in these early films. He knows how to use air to move mm-hmm. things on on the, the set, to just bring a vitality to characters and to what, what you're seeing there and make it really feel three-dimensional and, and go forward. And so I was watching that and I thought, wow... I have to give him a little bit more credit for what he's doing with Dietrich because so much of those films aren't really for me about the stories or, you know, what's going on. So I can't even really remember some of the love plots and whatnot. <laughs> right, right, right. Those are so incidental to watching Dietrich on that screen and watching all of the ways that everything moves around her. And it's it's beautiful. So, but yeah, we're stepping back. You know, we we don't want to dig too much into the Dietrich films because that's another box set. Maybe someday we'll get to it. But like I said earlier, I do think that these three stand on their own. They are not mere curiosities of pre-Dietrich era uh, von Sternberg. These are films that made his reputation. He had a good reputation beforehand. Started filming, started doing some directorial work in what, 1924, 1925, and mm-hmm. caught the attention of Hollywood bigwigs, including you know Chaplin, who wanted him to, to do work with him. He, he got noticed and, and picked up. But... <laughs> A difficult man to work with. Um, his vision maybe didn't always uh, align with uh, the business partners. And some of those films that he made in conjunction with uh, uh, these other, maybe at that time, more famous folks never came to fruition. In fact, the one he made for Chaplin, right now I'm blanking on the name. Uh, uh, woman of the Sea or uh, Seagulls. There's like two different titles. But, seagulls. Uh, yeah, that's, Seagulls, that's right. That's one that's, that's coming to mind particularly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It got made. It got screened. And then Chaplin a few years later, without having ever released it, and apparently without ever explaining why, uh, destroyed it because he didn't want to pay taxes on the film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which, which is, is astonishing. Crazy. Especially, you know, since, you know, Chaplin himself was 
such an advocate for artistic control, and and that was one of the things he fought the most for. And of course, he had the, the United commercial, well, exactly. And he also had the commercial clout to just say, "I'm going to do it my way, or you're just not going to get it." I don't know. I mean, you, you know, it's fascinating to speculate. Did he see you know von Sternberg as maybe you know a, a bit of a rival? Well, this like upstart, he needed to kind of you know cool his jets a little bit there, or what? Or was it purely a, just a financial consideration? The film maybe didn't have commercial potential Did the film really stink yeah yeah or was you know was von sternberg kind of off on some experimental tangent oh, alas we made well there's probably some scholarship out there that kind of gets into what was in the film and and you know all that but it's, it's a lost work and there's a few others that kind of fit into that category here but again just just such remarkable technical innovation and another quote from uh, von sternberg's uh, piece here is that you know once he kind of got the wherewithal to start making films on his terms, he became incredibly demanding and, and almost uncompromising, which he said was kind of remarkable even to him because a few months earlier, he would have taken any job that just paid his room and board. <laughs> so he, he really came out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. He was not some kind of you know independently wealthy aristocrat who could just make his own movies and if you don't like it, well, he'll just you know live off of his own fortune. I mean, he really did not have a whole lot going for him with any kinds of assets or connections just the you know the pride of his own ego and again this mysterious sense of knowing what he wanted to make and then figuring out a way to do it Uh, just it is very remarkable to consider how did all of this you know talent just come come into play here Uh, because you know again without you know, with my background of, of silent films being fairly limited, I mean, I've seen a lot of the classics, you know, the big titles and stuff, but it really feels like there's some some amazing stuff going on here. And I think, you know, the contemporary reports is that von Sternberg did things differently than the, the major directors. And he brought innovations that, uh, you know, really kind of progressed the art, even though he was kind of doing it at the very tail end of the silent cinema era. And he, like everybody else, had to transition to talkies uh, one way or another. Again, Dietrich was kind of his ticket to do that uh, very successfully because she could sing, she could perform. And even her voice and her, you know, kind of exotic manner, I think, you know, gave him content that uh, allowed him to make a very successful transition, at least for a while, into the sound era. Yeah, what do you think about jumping into some of these films now? And yeah, let's and, do it. Yeah, for and, sure. We, you know, any time that we want, we can slip back into generalities. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. No, I think we've laid the foundation yeah. there, kind of the background. And, and we'll get back, listeners, to the box itself and to these supplements here and yeah. here in a little bit. But it, fair, I think we've we've laid the foundation, and we're probably for people who haven't watched these films, maybe have intrigued you a little bit. So we'll we'll talk a little bit about what they are. I guess no promises about spoilers. What are your thoughts on that, David? We haven't talked yeah. about that yet. Um, <laughs> well, you know, that's probably a fair warning. I, I guess I, I like to talk about films fairly freely. Me too. Me too. Um, maybe if we get to very specific conclusions, we can give some spoiler alerts there. Uh, so maybe we'll try to keep it in a more general sense. And then if something compels us to say oh and then there's that big reveal well <laughs> we'll try to try to give a little bit of a uh, an indicator where we're going there yeah now. it's it's kind of strange on films that are nearly 100 years old but for many people just barely available for the first time you know so right. so we'll try and be right. respectful of that but yeah listeners we're we like to talk about about what we what we're seeing and and um, but we'll try and be respectful too 
Yeah, and and each of the films, I guess you could say, does have kind of a a twist ending, not not a Shyamalan type of twist or anything, but but you know, there's kind of a dramatic climax that kind of brings it all together. I mean, each of these kind of ends in a particular way with a okay, that's what that was all about. Mm-hmm. So if if that kind of thing bothers you, we'll uh, we'll try to respect uh, and you know give fair. Yeah, word. that's fa- that's a fair point because you know even though I've seen these before, it has been several years. And I, in every story, in every single one of them, found myself trying to remember, how does this thing end? What's going to happen here? So that is, a, that is a, an important <laughs> yeah, yeah. part of these films. He does, he does spin a yarn that makes you want to, to see how it goes. But, but let's start with the first one in the set. This is Underworld. Credited in some of the supplementary materials, and I've seen it online, as you know, one of the first gangster films, and maybe the first one that really got the public interested in them. That can't be true based on what I'm reading of other parts. For example, the actress in the film, Evelyn Brent, there's another supplement that says, you know, she'd been working for quite some time with many roles in gangster films. So, you know, they, mm-hmm. they've been making gangster films and crime films and, and all of that, and a lot of those are lost. But I do understand where this may have been the first gangster film. Like, you know, like we say sometimes, you, you ain't seen nothing. This is where it really began. <laughs> because, mm-hmm. again, this master of images has created this film that does it better than so many imitators over the years since to create this underworld, this space where there are Tommy guns and blowing up walls and, you know, win- windows and bricks being shot out and <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. Yeah it's, yeah, it's quite something. And at the same time has a fairly, fa- I-, I would say, very simple, very simple plot. You know, it's easy to, to I think, encapsulate this film and some of the, the, the gears that get it spinning in just a sentence or two. Uh, let me know how I do here, David. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> so we have basically three central characters. We have a boss, a gangster boss. His name is Bullweed. He is played by George Bancroft, who shows up both in this film and in the docks of New York and has quite the physical presence. I mean, this guy looks like a brick wall, very tough. He's got quite the smile and uh, these, these kind of shiny eyes. So you're sympathetic with him, even though he's, he's, the, he's the big bad guy here. But, you know, we'll, we'll get into it. Von Sternberg puts a heart on this guy as well. We have his, his girl, Feathers. That's played by Evelyn Brent, who I brought up just a minute ago. And we have a fellow named Rolls-Royce, played by Clive Brook. At the beginning of the film, Rolls is uh, down on his luck. He's kind of a failed or, you know, disillusioned uh, attorney. I understand where he's coming from. And, (laughs) you know, Bull kind of helps him out and re... He was your point of connection. Yeah, that's how I got into the film. (laughs) 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 If only I could find that gangster, I can be their, their, their counselor. (laughs) But, but at the beginning, you know, he's, he's down and out, but Bull knows he will be loyal. And so he, you know, kind of makes him his, 
his well-dressed uh, conciliary in a way. I mean, he does do the sweeping mm-hmm. and stuff, but he's also a, a, a counselor and a kind of an advisor throughout the film. Well, he was also an eyewitness to, to Weed's robbery. Mm-hmm. You know, there's kind of a dramatic opening, you know, windows being blown out, a, a bank vault being, you know, exploded, and, and here comes Bull kind of staggering out, you know, from from the doorway of the bank that's just been blown up, and, and, and there's, you know, Rolls-Royce, a kind of a tottering drunkard who, you know, identifies Weed, knows Weed by by his face, and, uh, you know, Bull Weed closing another account. And so now we, uh, Weed has the problem of an eyewitness. He's, so he's got to take care of business there, and that's where he kind of recognizes uh, Royce. Well, he doesn't even know his name, but he recognizes this guy's kind of compromised. He can just shove him up, get him in the car, get him back to his place, and then figure out what he's going to do with this potential stool pigeon, you know. But uh, Royce says, hey, I'm, I'm for real. I, I, I'll keep your secrets. Uh, you can count on me. In fact, he, that's where he gets his nickname. I, I, I'm silent like a Rolls Royce, you know, known for their great, you know, mechanical integrity and smooth ride and all of that. And that's where the nickname Rolls Royce comes from. Interesting is that at the time, Stunt von Sternberg was married to a woman named Riza Rice, Royce, Riza Royce. And uh, I wonder if that's kind of where the nickname was at least partially originated because hmm. Rolls Royce is not a character in the treatment that Ben Hecht put together. And we'll get into that maybe in a little bit, but uh, just kind of a curious little uh, note of trivia that I, I, I picked up there when I saw it's a little bit from von Sternberg's personal life there. Yeah. And you, you've, you've kind of done a really good job there, David, of, of showing how, even though there's a simple story going on here, like I was kind of expressing, mm-hmm. um, there's mm-hmm. so much fun stuff going on underneath it. You've got these two characters and their relationship, you know, Bull and Rolls. You've also got Bull and Feathers. And then you've got Rolls, Royce, and Feathers, because they start up a right. little bit of a, you know, secret uh, relationship that causes all of the, well, not all the problems. I mean, Bullweed's life causes all the problems, but <laughs> but I think Feathers and Rolls Royce cause a lot of the uh, concern uh, that Bullweed has later on. Are they loyal to him or do they love each other? Are they cheating on him? And then in their mm-hmm. own life, they do love each other. That's a genuine relationship right there. But do they then sacrifice their loyalty that they've devoted to to Bullweed, who, as awful a person as he is uh, in some senses, he has been their savior. He has been good to them, and I think they recognize there's a heart there in in Bullweed that, uh, again, von Sternberg shows us several times throughout. Even though he's a man who thinks he's above the law and does what he wants to, he doesn't think anyone else is above the law, and so he's helpful to many people. So, you know, kind of one of those one of those situations here. So here here's our general premise. Get all the the wheels spinning there, and then you've got some side characters. You've got a Buck Mulligan who's you know kind of a, a rival uh, gangster wanting to encroach upon this part of town. I love that his name is Buck Mulligan. Oh yeah, <laughs> was that kind of a, a a figure? Obviously, we're thinking about Ulysses. Oh yeah, right? yeah. Uh, Stephen Dedalus's roommate there, and and a kind of a notorious character himself in that novel. But you know, Buck Mulligan just has a great name. Uh-huh. Just, it's fun <laughs> to say. Rolls off the lips there. Stately plump Buck Mulligan, and that's how Ulysses starts, <laughs> and it really is Ups, a right. name that just rolls with all of that. So, so you got him as kind of the 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 one on the other side, and. Yeah, go ahead, David. I I think I cut you off there. Well, well, no, no. Uh, I think it's yeah. Just I think to me is like the allure of these 
these kind of wild men, these devil may care, uh, you know, personalities who just kind of live life recklessly, but just by sheer force of will and nerve and audacity seem to kind of intimidate and push people back. I mean, there, there are many scenes where, where, you know, he's just kind of no nonsense and people just kind of retreat. They, they yield whenever a bull comes in and uh, makes his presence known. Uh, Buck Mulligan is, is aspiring to that. And, but you can tell he doesn't have the same kind of finesse, you know, I mean, he, he gets angry and violent and, 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 uh, you know, he looks he's, more petulant. Exactly, and he, petty and, and braggadocio, just kind of, uh, and and so in a way, even though it's like you don't really want to mess with the guy because he can, you know, he can hurt you or whatever, or you just don't want that kind of complication. He he's not nearly as charismatic or as impressive, and and so I and I think this is you know such a key to what makes a great gangster film is that you know most of us who live more conventional lives or or at least uh, you know stay within the rules most of the time look at characters like that and say wow what a what a way to live you know i mean obviously we know it's a ticket to uh, an early grave or or other kinds of troubles that we just really would rather not deal with but it is fascinating to think about living life that recklessly and without heed to you know the consequences of, of you know running afoul of the law or even of meeting up with somebody bigger and meaner and stronger than than you are so uh i think there is this kind of vicarious excitement that just comes from how watching how these these stories unfold but like any other kind of charismatic strongman bullweed knows how to you know surround himself with hangers on who are you know both grateful and also you know dependent and compromised by the relationship that they've built uh, they've bought into the program and now that they are kind of possessed or, or kept by him they really can't get out without everything falling into ruins pretty quickly and uh, I just think of certain personalities in our society that kind of uh, <laughs> emulate that same kind of style of like you know I'll make it good for you as long as you're loyal to me and you know stay within the means and, and know your role um, but if you run afoul of that or if you try to break out or or, or criticize the boss you're going to get it. So <laughs> uh, as, as things were, as they are, you know, we sort of live within a, a world at least partially governed by, you know, men of that sort. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> similar thoughts, <laughs> especially as, you, as you, you're you running through that very articulately, David. I, I caught, I yeah, caught it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I don't know if this is one where we need to go into like plot specifics necessarily i just was fascinated no, I think there's impressions right yeah, mm-hmm. i was just fascinated by so much of the imagery in this film it starts just with these you know that 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 robbery and you got the quiet streets and again we've seen this many times since we we've seen the 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 wall blow up we've seen so many of these images before but they still stood out to me as fresh and exciting in this particular picture. And again, I think it's because von Sternberg isn't just blowing up a wall. He's, I don't I don't know how he does it. I mean, he's got the fans on. He's got something that, that just adds another dimension to it. Even though these are a little raggedy, these films, you know, they've been restored, mm-hmm. but there's scratches all throughout. They still pop and glisten. And uh, I think a lot of it's because of that. A lot of it's because of the actor's. You know, you've got George Bancroft when he does, and this is, I guess, a, a, a slight, slight spoiler, 
But when he finally says, I'm going to go get Buck Mulligan, that's pretty terrifying. <laughs> he does look like an unstoppable force. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that. I mm-hmm. love how these these people are directed in this film to create so many emotions. Yeah, yeah. No, and, uh, same with feathers. I mean, again, the, the use of facial expressions, body language... A feather, <laughs> yeah, the the it's feather, beautiful. right, right, and oh, man, yeah, right. It's just it's just this brilliantly conceived little moment, but it it just it conveys so much and creates so much atmosphere. And then Rolls Royce, you know, the the way that he kind of is this kind of pretty much almost on the verge of becoming a bum, and then he gets cleaned up and you recognize, oh, this guy's you know he's got some looks, he's got a sort of a presence of his own, and even the saucy little dialogue when Feathers kind of gives him the look and he's like, so when's the last time that body's been washed and polished rolls, right? <laughs> it's just like, whoa, that's, uh, that's pretty fresh, you know? Um, and then there was a, an early moment where I think they both recognize the mutual attraction and uh, Rolls says to her, you know, uh, I'm not interested in women. So I was like, well, is this kind of a, a, a veiled hint that, you know, he's a, a gay character? Or is this just, you know, or, or is that just kind of him trying to say, hey, back off, lady, before we get ourselves in some trouble here? And, of course, uh, you know, the attraction builds from there. But it was just really interesting, uh, even in a film where there's mm-hmm. not a lot of dialogue mm-hmm. and all the dialogue is delivered through, you know, title cards. Uh, there, is, there are these kind of nuances of, of character development that are going on as you sort of just recognize the sort of the multidimensionality of of these of this love triangle at the beginning or at the heart of this film and uh and that is where you know the 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 movie goes in a little different direction than Ben Hecht's original treatment you know you, you I know you and I messaged a little bit about it had you had a chance to read it or not I knew you were going to ask me that question, David. Well, that's okay. I, not to put you on the spot, just wondering. <laughs> I <laughs> didn't. I didn't I read it. it. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I'm going to. It's. It's kind yeah. of the next supplement on my. I've done everything else in in the whole in the whole thing and thought that'll be nice to yeah. go to bed to last night, and that mm-hmm. didn't happen. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, you know, it's really interesting. Hecht's um, approach in the original treatment there, and I'm not sure if this was ever published independently as a short story. It reads as if it could be like some kind of pulpy, you know, crime, uh, magazine of the time, but it's really, it's, it's really about the concluding scenes of the film with the big shootout at the end where Bullweed holds up because he's escaped from, you know, death row. So I guess, you know, we'll sort of say, okay, spoiler time. <laughs> um, but, but the difference is that the whole story and, and hex treatment is kind of told about that particular encounter. So there's really none of the buildup of showing this, underworld the you know there's a lot of snappy you know uh kind of crime slang and and you you get the the sense of the characters as you know there's bullweed there's feathers i can't remember the the other character's name but it's it's not rolls royce in the in this treatment but it's it's that same guy and there's not as much of a of a love triangle aspect either it's just bullweed is convinced that his closest confidants have betrayed him, and then there's a, a, a way to show that that's not really the case. But but what von Sternberg did is, is I think he warmed it up so that it's not just kind of this, you know, almost voyeuristic look at, you know, these, you know, 
fearless, bold, and brazenly, you know, corrupted, you know, criminal underworld characters. They're they're real human beings, in a sense, who are you know going through some of the same types of complications that that many of us can relate to. It's just that the, the stakes are very high. It's very much a life or death type of, of thing. And I think Hecht was actually pretty dismissive and didn't really like what von Sternberg had done with those characters. But, you know, then Hecht gets an Academy Award yeah. for Best Screenplay. So it's like, okay, I guess that's all forgiven, you know? <laughs> Are you okay? But, Did uh, we take yeah. a second just to talk about sure. who this Ben Hecht fella is? Oh, I mean, yeah, he's, true. I'm he's certainly... dropping the name pretty casually there. Right? Yeah, well, and I didn't, you know, I, I should pay more attention to the writers uh, behind the <laughs> scenes, but I was pretty delighted to, to see that... You know, not only did he win that uh, first Academy Award for original story, he was the screenwriter behind Notorious and mm-hmm. behind Scarface. You know, he, right. he became a very successful screenwriter. I don't know how much of it had to do with, you know, being the first person to ever win an Academy Award for original story. That probably didn't hurt. Hopefully any sour grapes he had for the, the treatment, <laughs> you know, he, he probably well, looked back and also thought, oh, I'm glad that happened, though. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, he's a good writer. I mean, the, the story really clips along as just a, a, a text on its own merits. But what what's really interesting is that von Sternberg took just a few elements uh, you know, this dramatic shootout at the end and, and you know, the police kind of the dragnet swarming in. And and, and, and also, the other thing is that uh, Hecht's, uh, the, the devices that he uses to reveal where Bullweed is hiding out, it's, it's almost kind of preposterous because um, Feathers goes looking for somebody different who just happens to be in the same building where Bull... Um, is is hiding out and and the person that feathers is looking for also happens to be there but it's just like this really remarkable and almost unbelievable coincidence uh, it seems to me that von sternberg made it a much more plausible conclusion here and that bullweed went to one of his old hideouts and that kind of leads to uh, the discovery, you know, which again sets up the final confrontation. Um, but but von Sternberg saw in this, you know, in this scenario, uh, elements that he then took in very different directions to develop characters and to get the audience much more drawn into the the relational drama that was happening here. So this isn't just, you know, a, you know, kind of a you know, high stakes action thriller here. I mean, there's certainly some great sequences of that, but I, I really do believe it's it's the it's the intricate relate uh, relational entanglements that um, are kind of the core here. You know, there's of course mm-hmm. the great visuals, but if you don't have a good story, uh, you know, then this becomes just fancy window dressing. Uh, the the fact that you've got a, a really engaging uh, plot, simple though it may be, um, with you know all the beautiful elements of how the story is told itself, and that's what makes this a classic. And I think also, you know, uh, a pretty big performer. This was a film that lined people up around the block to see. So again, another indication that uh, even though these may seem like familiar elements uh, that were imitated so many ways over the years, this really was kind of a breakthrough. You mentioned earlier that there were other gangster films, but they were just, you know, stories that were about criminals. And, of course, you know, crime and violence and, and um, 
all of that is is you know sort of cinematic catnip you know you're just interested to see what happens when people kind of cross the line but this i think probably did develop it into a specific genre it's like we're going to really kind of build a a vocabulary a, a, a kind of a whole cinematic tradition uh, that just kind of explores this from from lots of different angles. I, I really do feel like this is kind of the the base upon which so many great crime films were built. Yeah, I guess if you put gangster film in in capital letters, like the you know yeah. capital G, capital F, this is the first <laughs> one. You know, there are pr- mm-hmm. plenty that dealt with this stuff, but this is the one that that could be titled that. Really, before we do move on, I just want to yeah. e- even if I just mentioned the word that that dreamland sequence. Oh yeah! Uh, oh my yeah. goodness, uh, <laughs> listeners, I, go watch it just just for so, for so many of the reasons that we have. But there is a remarkable sequence. I don't know, two thirds of the way through, that that is just von Sternberg. Who who would I, I would never have thought to make something like that? It is. You're talking about the ball, the the gangster ball there. Yep, the, in the Dreamland. Yeah. Is it the Dreamland Cafe mm-hmm. or something like that? Yeah. But that's the name of the of the of the establishment where they are at, and it's it is a Dreamland. I mean, it is a mm-hmm. it is quite abstract, but in a way, it still feels grounded. You know, you can see what what who people are and what's going on, but it it does have this sense of reverie and of losing oneself and that excitement. But uh, uh, boy, it, it's it's really something else. What what von Sternberg does with the visuals, with the props. With all of that confetti, almost make people swim around in it. It's, it's yeah, the streamers really something all that. Else. And again, it's another thing where you know there's a line in, in Hex treatment where um, when the newspapers are kind of sensationalizing, Bullweed is holed up, he's on the lamb, and and then the the story of uh, feathers and and Bull's accomplice having kind of a a, a romance uh, that. Uh, Feathers is referred to as the queen of the underworld, and and one of the things that the the purposes of this ball is to sort of, you know, you, you buy a vote, you 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 raise money, and you do, you nominate which woman you want to see as queen of the underworld. So he takes that little phrase, that little throwaway, kind of newspaper jargon, and uses that as a as a kind of a, a plot device that that shows feathers being elevated to you know just as bullweed is kind of the the kingpin of all the crime bosses feathers becomes queen of the underworld so it's just another really interesting little nugget that that von sternberg just elaborates and develops into this incredible <laughs> scene and, and and just you know all the other revelry and and kind of uh, phantasmagoria of of that of of the of that sequence is is pretty fantastic you know the editing that kind of lineup of all the different faces and yeah just all the all the things that go on in that in that sequence pretty pretty remarkable yeah well should we move on to the last command the next film yeah yeah sure all right yeah so this came out just the the next year 1928 and you you mentioned emil yawnings is in it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. any any background on emil yawnings for you or the things you want to bring up with him He's a, he no, was a star I, I, already. He he was perhaps one of the supreme stars, apparently of of, of European cinema. Um, this was I don't know if this is his first work that he did in Hollywood or exactly how that came about, but you know, uh, 
he, um, he I'm, I'm not as familiar. I mean, I know he was in the Blue Angel. He did work with Von Sternberg later. And I, again, that's another disc that I own, but I just haven't gotten to it yet. But I really feel like I need to, other than some of the famous sequences that have been used in different, you know, highlight reels and anthologies and whatnot of Marlena Dietrich and in that, in that role. But uh, she was really just a supporting player in that film. Emil Jannings was the main guy. And uh, I think he was the first actor to win an Academy Award mm-hmm. for not yeah, for this film and for another one that he did that same year. Mm-hmm. And he is, a, again, a really big presence. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to kick myself because I can't recall at the moment the name of the guy who was in uh, Les Miserables, uh, you know, another big man uh, actor. Uh, I'm talking about. I do. Yeah. I do. Starts with a B. <laughs> okay. Starts with a B. His last name, right? I'm sorry, I can't uh, you remember. Know, yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> terrible. But that's that's what you do with spontaneous uh, conversations without notes. But anyways, you know, obviously, you know, these guys uh, had that kind of um, presence based on just their physical attributes, the the, the size of their bodies, and and the, the size of the ego that kind of goes along with it. Um, but I really don't know much about his career. Uh, he does give mm-hmm. a, a pretty remarkable performance. He's got to play uh, the same character, but with a really wide range of um, kind of pers- the perspective or the position that he occupies in society. This this is probably the film that uh, feels the most like uh, an epic, you know, silent movie classic, and maybe feels a little bit more dated. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I think that's yeah. fair, and it and it does feel I, so. If if you haven't seen him, I, I do recommend going back and watching his work with Murnau. Um, yeah, and mm-hmm. he he. I have the old Kino box set of F. W. Murnau films that has the Last Laugh, where you you see Yawnings, uh, Tartuffe, and Faust. Um, all of those are in that box set, and maybe even mm-hmm. maybe even another one. I'm not sure. Uh, but those are earlier, you know. Those are through the twenties, and he's he is quite the the presence in those as well. But you're right, this one this feels of a part with those. I still I love this film. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting what uh, von Sternberg does with the story here. Uh, but yes, I think it does feel kind of the you know the the boom the booming presence of Emil Yannings uh, does feel fitting for a 1920s film. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the story is very interesting. I mean, uh, again, when I was just kind of appraising the sets, like okay, you got Underworld, a gangster film, The Last Command, a Russian Revolution film, and Docks of New York, kind of a grimy, gritty slice of life from you know this kind of rough and tumble world. Um, so when the last command opens, it's Hollywood 1928, you know, ripped from today's uh, headlines, kind of a very contemporary, it's like Hollywood, we're, we're supposed to be in Moscow. I'm, I'm waiting for the, right. the Bolsheviks and the Tsarists <laughs> to clash in the streets and the waving of the flags and, you know, all of that. It's like, you know, what's this Hollywood stuff? So I, it really, you know, caught me off guard. Um, but it's, it's a, it's a very interesting kind of framing device. Uh, what's happening is that there's a film being made. Uh, the director is played by none other than Godfrey, the Thin Man himself, William Powell. Oh, yeah. Uh, kind of an early... Yeah, it's is great. And and uh, uh, again, I had not really noticed in the credits that was possible. Is that William Powell? It sure looks a lot like him. But I guess this is kind of his breakout role as well. And he's a director who uh, has some roots in the Russian kind of revolutionary movement. And he's doing kind of a general casting call for his extras as he's putting 
putting together this story about the Russian Revolution, and uh, and he ends up he, he sees a photograph of a, a face that looks familiar to his, and he flips it over and says, "Well, this man claims to have been the." commander of the Russian army and a cousin to the czar, he'll work for seven and a half bucks a day. <laughs> so it's kind of like, you know, is this is this kind of some kook, you know, some guy with some delusions of grandeur here? Uh, the director recognizes the face, and you don't really, it's not really explicitly laid out there, but you can just tell the way he kind of lingers over this photo. It's like, yeah, let's go ahead and cast this guy. Here is my past. <laughs> what am I <laughs> exactly. going to do with it? <laughs> right, and, and, and so, you know, and all of this kind of ties together as, as we see the film unfold. Uh, but that's kind of the, the frame, and then the center of the film is the story of how this Russian general, uh, you know, was a participant in the in the incredible dramatic events that resulted in the fall of the Tsarist regime and and uh, his eventual exile to America uh, when he recognized that there was no future for him uh, in uh, the emerging Soviet Union. Uh, so yeah, this is a film that definitely is is a little bit more challenging because it's just a little bit more complex plot wise. Um, I would say it's probably the one I I still need to maybe work on to fully get into it or appreciate it. Uh, whereas with Underworld and the Docks of New York, I was just instantly like rhapsodic about how much I love these films. This one here is, is again, brilliant work and, and a really fascinating specimen of films from this era, but it, you know, didn't, it didn't grab me in that same visceral way. Um, this is one where I sort of, I respect it. I, I'm glad we have it. It would have been a shame if this had wound up as one of those lost films. Um, but Underworld and Docks of New York for me are like, you know, it doesn't matter what era they come from or are you in the mood for a silent film or, you know, there's, there's no homework aspects to either of those. This one felt a little bit more to me like I'm doing more of a study to understand, you know, films of a particular time and place and all that. Yeah, I think that's fair. And it didn't do as well as the others in the box office. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, clearly it was still successful for the participants with Yawnings going on to win the first Best Actor Award in part because of this film. But, you know, it, it didn't... It didn't grab audiences nearly. I mean, it's like completely different level than Underworld, and um, and that's completely understandable. I think I think the thing that I like about it that does pull me in is is definitely reliant on some homework. <laughs> I think you're right there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's very uh, interesting to see uh, von Sternberg um, playing out this film with a, a tyrannical presence you know but but somewhat benevolent in the form of the uh of the uh general but also of the roles reversed when it's the director who has that ability to throw people around the, the set and tell them what to do and, and here's what not and you know kind of exploit and and use his position as director to have a little bit of a comeuppance with the uh the general who didn't necessarily treat him right uh in in the past um it does lead to him uh trying to you know give a little bit of dignity back to the general because they have a shared past but also humiliate him to a degree but then in the end have his own realization of who this man was uh the the the, the general's character um i think that uh, i think that the interesting aspects of this one do rely a lot more on the 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 meta elements 
uh, mm-hmm. of it of what's going on here what these these reversals these actors um, the supplements talk a lot about acting and you know the roles we play and all of that and that's just it, it's a different ball game than you know the visceral uh, just story that grabs onto you and pulls you through with underworld and Do- the docks of New York for sure um, uh, and and I don't know I, I haven't tried to rank these yet. Uh, so I have I don't know exactly where they might stand, but I do think you have to be interested in that aspect in order to to grab too much from this movie. Um, though though there are some exciting things uh, to be had as well, um, and and maybe what I'm trying to say here is the the framing story is what to me elevates this film up a lot. But it that's something that Sternberg Ron Sternberg added um, the depth of that. I mean. That the story that he received to give treatment to seemed to have been focused on the 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 Russian general and his fall from grace in the in the Russian Revolution, and I think he does end up going to Hollywood as an extra, but it doesn't make too much of that. Um, in in von Sternberg's film, that's to me the 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 meat of the matter, and the whole Russian Revolution part uh, that involves. Uh, Evelyn Brent again as a revolutionary who's conflicted as to whether to, you know, kill this man or fall in love with him <laughs> because mm-hmm. she sees greatness <laughs> in him. You know, that's there and it's 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 part of the excitement. Uh, but for me, the, the the reason that this film should be watched and remembered is is its place in in I think some of von Sternberg's own um, own. Uh, thought process about directing and acting and filmmaking. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it is, it feels very, you know, uh, ahead of its time in terms of the, the kind of the bold, um, kind of that, that meta, you know, self-referential piece there. And again, here's a young director who's really still only have, has made a, a handful of films, but he's going to go ahead and say, oh, yeah, let's kind of watch the process of a movie being made as part of a movie. I mean, that's that's pretty pretty cool. It feels like the kind of thing that maybe you know would even be considered as a as a plot device nowadays. You know, just kind of stepping back and and to see this kind of well, certainly not documentary, but very very revealing uh, sort of behind the scenes look of movie making of of its time of of 1928 you know with all the framing and scaffolding and the cameraman and the crew and you know this von sternberg's kind of giving us a very valuable glimpse of Mm -hmm. that whole process i mean it it is really fun to watch those pieces of it as well and then just you know that kind of larger archetypal style of of you know great and powerful men humbled by the circumstances of history and the personal stories that uh, occur when you know great empires fall down and people have to scramble for their lives. I mean, let's let's just say I mean this is this is a movie made ten years after the fact. Uh, you know, World War One had had occurred, and we're in the, the you know kind of the latter part of the Roaring Twenties. But even then, you know, I, I was struck by the fact that one of those early scenes called it the Hollywood breadline. You see all these masses of men just kind of mobbing up to get their crack at a little bit of a moment of cinematic, you know, 
fame as well as the six or seven bucks a day that they they give to the extras. Well, you know, the, the Wall Street stock market hadn't crashed. So, you know, you think of bread lines, you think of the Depression in the 1930s. Well, there were bread lines in the late 1920s, which also gets me thinking about, uh, you know, wealth distribution. And even though we think of the Roaring Twenties as you know, a prosperous time up until that fateful day in October of 29 where everything falls down. Well, I think, you know, there was a lot of poverty and there was a lot of people scrambling just trying to make ends meet or, or uh, you know, even <laughs> avoid even worse outcomes. And here you see this this once potent commander of, of battalions, of divisions, of, of whole armies uh, reduced to this kind of you know, almost skid row, you know, shaky, you know, feeble old man, uh, just scraping by. And like I said, the reversal of the, of the revolutionary, uh, you know, running for his life and in danger of, you know, execution if he's caught at the wrong moment. And now he's the one with, with power and control and, and von Sternberg, who's who's lived abroad, uh, has become a, a prominent director from somewhat scruffy origins. Uh, you know, uh, obviously he's a little bit of he's got you know William Powell is playing sort of his stand-in. You know, a, a man who now is able to you know command the great actor Emiliano, mm-hmm. who's one of the great mm-hmm. superstars of world cinema, and, and getting uh, the fights uh, with him. Yeah, yeah, a clash, a clash of egos for sure. And here's Yanning saying, "Who's this pup? <laughs> you know, telling me where to get off. I'm the great, I'm the great star here." And yet, you know, he, I think they recognize they sort of met each other's match in terms of, you know, ego and arrogance and all of that. So yeah, a lot of interesting sort of dynamics happening in all of this. What did you think of the the images in this one? Are there are there parts that stand out um, the same way that images in Underworld do? Um, some that I'm kind of thinking of myself is mm-hmm. when when Evelyn Brent's character pulls the gun uh, oh, on yeah. the general, yeah. and you get that nice uh, that nice slip of the camera around, and just how that how that was played out. Um, I really like the part where William Powell uh, fixes the uh, the the metal, you know, that, that goes on oh, the yeah. general's mm-hmm. coat and mm-hmm. just moves it around. Um, but it's harder for me to latch on to particular images in this one. Those are some great, yeah. uh, some great moments. Uh, but I, I, you know, are, are there parts of this one that, that stand out quite the same as Underworld? Well, I think the the the, sort of the more palatial scenes, you know, where he's kind of in the in the richness of uh, of his kind of aristocratic environments in in Moscow or wherever Saint Petersburg, whatever wherever those scenes were set, um, as kind of a nice setup and certainly a nice contrast between uh, this film and the more seedy, you know, uh, smoky, grimy. Uh, milieus of of uh, underworld and docks of new york uh, this is kind of von sternberg kind of almost setting us up for things like the scarlet empress and some <laughs> yeah. fancier type of envi- uh, uh, environment i gotta, s- I gotta yeah. say when you're saying like moscow or st petersburg i'm like or yeah. von sternberg's head because you know yeah these are, well yeah oh yeah and, and i love how <laughs> this film to me emphasizes that that these aren't he, and I love how you know the supplements always talk about these are von Sternberg's worlds, and he he's yeah. purposefully fabricating them. He talks about that too, and you can see that in the in the shots of this one where you can see the the film set when they kind of zoom out and you know from this battle scene, and there's all the 
extras and the scaffolding like you were saying before and the cameras and you're like oh yeah he, this is just an invented made-up world um he can do he, and he does whatever he wants as long as it somewhat feels like moscow he's got it <laughs> yeah well well he seems like a very well-read guy and again he's traveled some of the world he's certainly i mean he's from vienna which has got its own you know incredible sumptuous architecture and traditions and all of that so but he knows how to convey the impression the image of a place uh, one of the other supplements talked about how uh, the pasha of uh, uh, one of the cities in morocco marrakesh or whatever complimented mm-hmm. him and, uh, <laughs> and how well he he uh, you know captured the the environment of of the city and and he wondered what locations he had chosen because you know and and said, well no i just i just kind of made this up i've never been to morocco this is just a, a hollywood set and uh, and this is where he preferred he did not like location shooting he wanted to be in a very comfortable enclosed environment um but he knew how to tap into not only his own imagination but the popular imagination there's like the concept the idea of these of these palatial settings and that was enough because uh, you know in some ways maybe showing the reality would have been a bit of a disappointment to a lot of audiences they they kind of imagine what it's like living in the you know pomp and splendor of the czarist's inner of the czar's inner circle you know so to me yeah that's just a, a great uh, give he's giving his audiences kind of a transport to uh you know larger than life locations as well as the personalities that are you know at the heart of these stories um another scene that you know there's a pretty impressive train wreck i think that was pretty yeah, well yeah. staged and pretty dramatic you know if you like that kind of thing I, i'm sure he's working with scale models but it, it looked good it was very very compelling it's not the general by any means but probably <laughs> no, probably no, for no. the better of the world in the environment it, it wasn't <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I, I, a, a very good one though again um i i think there's a, there's so much going on in it with on that meta level um but you know as as we've said before we're, we're not going to necessarily attempt to exhaust these films or ourselves um in mm-hmm. in going through them uh, in in that kind of level, but I do think that the supplements uh, complement this one quite nicely, and I guess we'll get into those a little bit more. Um, yeah. Do you want to move on to the docks of New York? Let's let's hit the docks. Well, why don't Why don't you is, is this this, uh, sure. this seemed to be one that you just a minute ago you said you know kind of grabbed you by by the oh, collar man. and th- you know pulled you through, and <laughs> I can see George sure. Bancroft just just uh, shoving <laughs> you all around the room to get you to sit oh, where yeah. he wants you to yeah. sit. <laughs> Well, let me, let me just say, I'm, I'm kind of stoked about this movie. <laughs> um, yeah, so George Bancroft is back here. He is a stoker, which is basically he shovels coal into the uh, engines of this steamship. It's, you know, I've, I've used the word gritty and grimy a few times, but this is oh, yeah. as oh, gritty man. and grimy as it gets. I mean, he's just covered with coal dust, and uh, he and his, his other, uh, you know, comrades down there are just, you know, just shoveling away for all they're worth to keep this big you know steamship moving and it's it's set i think maybe around turn of the century there's not a specific time but this it's kind of a pre-prohibition era certainly there's some pretty freewheeling scenes set in the bar um the sandbar uh is the name of the place but it's really a guy who's got one night of shore leave uh bill roberts is his name uh he's a you know brawny beast of a man who's you know again you know he's not only working in this smoky environment he's got a cigarette 
burning out of his mouth, you know, constantly. So he's just, again, you know, but his, his, his power, his presence just kind of keeps him moving forward in an environment. A lot of us would kind of <laughs> wilt and wither having to do that work. But uh, uh, the, the, the ship pulls into New York, drops off his load. The crew has one night uh, to, to go out and have a little bit of fun, and then they're going to be taking it right back in the morning. And you just get a sense that this guy's living a pretty hard life, but it's the life he's destined for. And so he winds up, uh, as he's making his way to a bar, um, there's a very, again, uh, impressionistic scene, uh, kind of told by reflections in the water of a woman who you don't really know or see or anything about her until, you know, uh, she's rescued. But do you see her uh, leaping off the dock uh, in a suicide attempt into the water? And Bill just happens to see and hear this, you know, person thrashing around. He takes a moment to contemplate what's going on, decides, yeah, he's got to go in and rescue her. So he jumps in, pulls her out, and she's just this complete limp little uh, wisp of a woman. Uh, but you know, he's, he's got to save her and, and give her a chance. And so he's, you know, sort of walks up to this bar and, uh, finds a room is just asking around to, to looking to get some help for this woman. Um, you know, and he's just kind of curious to see what's going on and just the way he lumbers around and everything just kind of is just to me, just really impressive and, and really intriguing. Uh, the woman is revived. Um, uh, she's really not given a name almost until the end of the picture, but her name is May. And uh, she just gives a really remarkable performance as a young woman who's obviously been pretty sullied by life. Uh, and one, you know, one one of her memorable quotes is, "I've had too many good times." You know, she's she's been a party girl. She's kind of a flapper. Uh, she's very pretty, you know, young blonde woman. Uh, great expressiveness, uh, but you can just tell she's she's burned out and she's ready to be done with it all. Uh, but you know, despite her best efforts, uh, she's rescued and she's got to live to face another day. Um, but over the course of the evening. Um, Bill, you know, gets her some new clothes, uh, you know, which kind of plays a part in the plot there and uh, takes her out and shows her a good time. And um, over, you know, the course of a a few hours in this really (laughs) rowdy uh, bar environment, they develop a bit of of an attraction or a connection with each other. And almost on a whim, Bill decides that he's going to marry this woman. Uh, they they both feel like the circumstances of their lives are make them completely unmarriable. And, you know, by all practical means, you're right, they probably don't really have any business getting married. Yeah. But it's just kind of, again, one of these kind of desperate measures, you know, devil may care, what have I got to lose type how of things. How can life and, get worse? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know. And it's almost like once Bill has been dared to consider marriage, is like I'll try anything once you know again just that that bravado that comes through and so there's a very raucous uh, wedding celebration uh, very spur of the moment but they get uh, hymn book Harry the the chaplain at the uh, local you know lost souls mission uh, down uh, a few blocks uh, from the from the bar he comes in and sort of officiates the thing very bemused like kind of wondering you know what he's gotten himself dragged into but you know, a ceremony of sorts is held, and now Bill and and this woman are married. Um, and but you know, there's just such a such a pathos and such a uh, a sense of, of of two souls kind of meeting each other at, at this moment of vulnerability. Uh, I just I just love the 
the efficiency and the compactness and the poignancy of, of the story. So that's my, my little walk into it. But there's there's a lot of things I just really, really appreciate. This this to me, I gave it a five-star rating on Letterboxd just because I, I just watched it. I said, this is just a, a perfect little exercise of, of cinematic greatness. Yeah, and there's so much going on in the background too. You've got the other couple <laughs> that doesn't have a successful yeah, right, marriage. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the, the husband... You know, I'll put that in quotes because I don't think they really consider themselves uh, married after what's three years or something since he left. Uh, he's kind of mm-hmm. the, the big wig on the boat, you know. Well, at least he's not a big wig on the boat. It's not like the captain for that or anything. crew. Yeah, he's the right. crew leader, foreman, right. right? So he's right. actually right. A, a lower, very, very low level. But he has this group underneath him, uh, which George Bancroft's Bill Roberts plays a, a part in that lower group. But on shore. You know, he's he looks a lot more scrawny, a lot more, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> a lot. Bill, Bill doesn't really respect him on the shore, uh, but he has a wife on at this place as well who is upset and hasn't seen him for a while and has kind of gone on living. You know, she's trying to make ends meet as well. And she, I think, sees the hope for Bill and May, you know, in their, in their one night quick, let's hurry up and get married. But she also knows that it's likely to just be terrible and not good for May at all. You know, this man may be sweeping you off your feet tonight, but he's going to leave you in the morning. And then he's and when he leaves, he's going to be gone for forever um, and may just show up to cause some pain and then leave again. You know, she, she knows what's going on and she's she hates her husband. Um, she, you know, definitely... Uh, resentful of the life that she has had to leave or live since their marriage, uh, to the point where you know that that creates some of the some of the issues that come on later on. Uh, so you got a lot of interesting stories going on, and this this just fascinating set <laughs> where they mm-hmm. all live. Um, I don't know. It looks almost like the docks in Popeye as well. You know, <laughs> yeah. <It's just laughs> yeah. things built on top of each other. Uh, Bill can just quickly climb up a rope to get up on the balconies to go and you know see what's going on with his now wife. You know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh, you know just a. Just a really uh, engaging film with with so much mechanical stuff going on around it, so much of the you know ropes and all of that. But uh, but yeah, very well made again um, from a from a production standpoint, and just full of full of heart. I think uh, both the yeah, good and the yeah, bad. Yeah, yeah. I think the 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 foreman's wife sees a younger version of herself in May. I mean, there's when, when May is first rescued and, you know, uh, they, they kick the men and, and, you know, so they can, you know, the women can attend to this, this girl as she's, you know, been kind of waterlogged and is just kind of regaining consciousness. There's just some nice moments of these two women um, sort of bonding with each other. And, you know, the, again, the older woman just looking at this this girl and saying, "Yeah, I've I've walked the same path as you, sister, but maybe there's a little bit more hope for you. Maybe, you know, this guy that you connected with will will treat you with a, just a little bit more, you know, dignity and respect." And yet, you know, it, it all feels so hopeless and so futile. You know, the kind of guy Bill Roberts is, the uh, you know the 
kind of allegiance he has i think that song brandy you're a fine girl <laughs> what a good wife you would be but my heart i love and my lady is the sea <laughs> as that's 50 years <laughs> later <laughs> but uh um kind of a 70s one hit wonder that i'm quoting for uh, maybe younger listeners or whatever so uh you, you kind of get again these archetypes you know the, the 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 man of the sea who's kind of a uh, 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 kind of a roustabout character kind of a lively big presence big personality and fun to be with but you know not stable enough to to last the day if if you don't fit into his immediate plans and yet there's just this this tenderness uh, you know the the gruff exteriors and the um the world weariness the you know the fatigue and just kind of uh how how life has kind of you know chewed these people up and probably doesn't have a real happy ending in store for them as as time goes on but they're they're grabbing what what pleasures they can in the moment, um, and you know again maybe this is where we do need to kind of get some active spoiler territory because I, I really love the the way this plot wraps up y- again the first time you watch it, it's like okay what's going to come of this you know is this uh, you know going to be a, a relationship that's realized or is it just going to be a poignant parting of the ways and you know you think about what what might have been. Um, I, I I loved the ending. I think it was just really fascinating, just the 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 personal aspects of it, as well as just kind of the way it sort of pulls back and puts these these kind of pathetic little characters in a bigger context. Um, but but maybe before we get into that, I also just I think Betty Compson, she's the you know she's May, the young girl. I was just really struck. I mean, I don't know if it was just because I found her attractive or just, you know, she her performance feels very timeless. Like her, she's not a mannered silent movie star of the 1920s as sometimes you see. Sometimes you even see like you, you admire the work, but it's kind of got a little bit of that dated aspect to it. Um, she just felt very contemporary and very expressive. I, you know, and I think, again, is that her as a as a brilliantly intuitive performer i i think i think you have to give a, a fair amount of credit to von sternberg because uh, not quite to the same um mannered level as like a bresson but sternberg really did practice this kind of um modeling of of his actors you know now look here count to three turn your head look up mm-hmm. to the left there i mean he's he's very specifically saying here's where to direct your eyes here's what to do with your mouth here's how you dip the shoulder i mean i think he was that 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 specific yeah. and that no precise. no not that way no no <laughs> right <laughs> and, and take 25 <laughs> yeah. you know that's like <laughs> And, and uh, you know, actors, uh, including William Powell, you know, from the previous film, did not like working with him. He, 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 he was one of these tyrants on the set and probably, you know, pushed people to their limits to get exactly what he wanted. But was it, really again, quickly, yeah. was it William Powell who put in his contract that uh, he, he would not be in a Von Sternberg movie? <laughs> it was one of them. Yeah, um, I think so. I think, I think it was. I think it was very explicitly stated, like, thank you for the... Uh, you know the breakthrough and and for the spotlight but never again mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah uh, so yeah i don't know if betty compson herself had that kind of a, a rigorous experience but um you, you know i think some credit goes to the director here and just how he positioned the actors but you know even even the little scenes you know when uh, you know the kind of the, the the parting scene where uh bill is you know kind of being 
you know, dragged away by his buddy to get back to work. And you can tell he's having serious conflict. Like, you know, the old Bill would have just, you know, said, hey, you know, thanks for the fun night, you know, Dame, and, uh, you know, kind of pushed her aside and gone back to his business. But there is something that's connecting these two that makes the parting very difficult for him. And in the process, when his buddy kind of tugs on his shirt, he tears his pocket loose and may just has this little moment of domestic bliss if you will uh you know sewing the pocket back into place even though she's so misty up with tears that she can't even thread the needle and you get this little subjective mm-hmm. point of view shot that's just it's a it's a little camera trick type of thing but it's really i thought it was just really beautiful and, and very affecting yeah, I agree. And I don't know Betty Compson from anything else. I did look her up. She she's been in she was in ninety six movies or something, according to Letterboxd. Okay. And did get mm-hmm. an Academy Award nomination for a movie that I don't think I've ever really, you know, has never registered in my mind. Um did didn't notice didn't know the name of it and can't recall it right now either. Um so, mm-hmm. you know, definitely had a career, uh, but this seems to have been been a high point uh, and maybe what she's best remembered for today. You know, I guess I don't know at the time, um, but everything that I looked up on her, I'll, you know, everything referred to this role and, mm-hmm. and what she, what she's doing here. And I agree. There's uh, I, again, it's, it, she, it, she kind of prototypical, you know, prototype uh, that sounds so reductive, but I'm trying not to say it like that, but uh, you can kind of see, um, Marlena, the, the things von Sternberg's going to do with Marlena Dietrich, you can see it starting mm-hmm. here. Um, he's he's capturing her uh, with the light and the shadow in ways that are very compelling. And, and not just because it makes her beautiful, it does, but it makes her emotions stand out. She doesn't have to be doing anything. She just has you just, you know, sit, sit there and look forward. And he knows how to capture the light and shadow on her face to make us feel so much emotion of what she's going through. I mean, she really doesn't have to do too much um, for for so much to, to come out of her performance and, and out of the the way that it's captured. Um, the, the, the photography here is, is by Harold Rawson, uh, who's, you know, famous for The Wizard of Oz. Um, and I, you know, I think that von Sternberg knew just as much about all of this technical stuff as his his uh, cinematographers, uh, according to to the legend. <laughs> you know, he he mm-hmm. learned it all. Um, but it is beautifully captured. There's a the the night. I mean, this is a movie that takes place a, a large degree at night. You you mentioned the the water when she jumps into the water at the beginning, um, and then the next day with the the morning. Uh, there's, it's all captured very nicely and in a way that is compelling and kind of heartbreaking, but in a way that, uh, helps you feel like your heart grew as well, you know, <laughs> throughout. Yeah. Well, yeah. In, in her looks and her expressions, uh, mute though they may be, uh, you sort of just get a sense of the life she's lived, you know, kind of what's brought her to this point of, of resignation and, and, um, uh, it just kind of, you know, there's this little flicker of a hope that somehow something that might actually work out for her. But kind of deep down, she knows that she's on the road to ruin. And there's just, you know. Here's a question I have for you. Is yeah. this night worse for her psychological makeup or better? <laughs> because if you think about it, she jumps into the river to commit or into the into the 
into the sea or what you know it docks of new york yeah. i just don't at this river mm-hmm. there um jumps into the river to uh commit suicide she then gets rescued she gets married she gets abandoned she gets arrested she's she is accused <laughs> of murder and then arrested and sentenced for theft <laughs> And yeah. that's all in one day. <laughs> you know, she's sitting there in front of the judge um, at the end. And he's like, when did you get married? Last night. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. this poor girl. You know, she's, th- this may be something that, that sets her up in life for, for some kind of happiness. Oh, but you can see why yeah. she's got those looks in her eye. Because uh, for her to be able to even take this night, um, she's been through it. Right. And, and again, the fact that she, you know, she was rescued for this, <laughs> you know, like, boy, thanks right. a lot, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, she says it yeah, best. And, uh, you, uh, you shouldn't have rescued me. You know, I, I didn't right, want it. Right. But. Right. And yet she's got to live. She's got to put up with it even further. So again, I think there's just something um, very moving in her performance. Maybe it just brings out the my little knight in shining armor, my, my inner <laughs> hero that wants to, you know, rescue her and help help it make it better, even though certainly far from my capacity to do that. But you just feel for her, I guess. I just have that sense of of uh, regret that, uh, you know, a nice girl like her just had to be so shafted over by the cruelties that this world can inflict on some people. So, yeah, yeah uh, to me, it's just a, a really remarkable little story. And then and there is a happy ending. I guess this is where the spoiler kicks in, is that Bill, who uh, was, you know, actually got off on the ship and went away, uh, decides to jump ship and swim his way back to New York. They obviously weren't too far off off the shore, but uh, you know, I still had to really. I'm sure he had to really hump it to get there. But he shows up uh, back at the sandbar, looks for his wife, finds out she's been arrested, and you know, kind of makes a very kind of uh, heroic, maybe slightly implausible appearance at the night court, where he, uh, you know, if, after May's been sentenced to 30 days. He pops up and says, "I'm I'm the one who pinched those duds, Judge," and you know, kind of does his little you know talk there, and uh, he gets a 60 day sentence. Uh, but he decides that if she waits for him, he'll be there for her. So, uh, anyway, again, it's 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 fairy taleish, I would suppose. But uh, I just really love the punch of that of that ending and the fact that, and you know, despite all the hard knocks and adversity. Maybe just maybe this couple will make a go of it. Uh, I, you know, the odds are not good, but uh, it ends on a pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty poignant note. You know, if you want to think about it as a realistic, uh, you know, will this couple survive type of thing? Probably but not. <laughs> I, I just, yeah, yeah, but but just kind of the you know, exquisiteness of of how this little tale is told, and again, the atmosphere, the 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 smoke and fog and lights, and just you know, little moments. I the the scene where. They're they're bringing a hymn book Harry out of the mission, and you know, all that bright light coming from the interiors of these buildings as the silhouettes stroll along the dock, you know, and making their way. I mean, it's just little isolated moments, but there's just so many gorgeous uh, little interludes and passages and 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 then the rollicking scenes of the of the bar the way von sternberg will occasionally you know pull back the camera so you've got this kind of close intense encounter between a couple of individuals and then you know he just sort of pulls back to see the kind of uh seamy uh 
environment in which all of this this dramatic interpersonal action is taking place. I just really uh, love his instincts and his touch to, you know, just kind of just creates this world that is, you know, not the most uh, charming or attractive world that you might want to physically be in, but it's fascinating to observe. And uh, again, the craftsmanship is apparent, uh, but it's not distracting. It's, it's not like flashy just to sort of show brilliance and innovation. Uh, look what I can do. It, it really mm-hmm. creates atmosphere and just enriches the whole experience. So um how about the uh the soundtracks let's talk a little yeah. bit about some of the uh the features there there's there's two uh, audio tracks for each film uh the first one uh each film has a kind of more conventional orchestral uh accompaniment uh in the style of uh, the original 1920s cinema uh, robert israels was the composer there i don't think those were they're not original they were composed specifically by him in more recent years i don't know that there is an authoritative uh, musical score that was ever issued for those films yeah, I will um, say the, that the first time I watched yeah. him, I, I watched him completely silent. There was no score attached ah, to them. Okay. Um, just because of the the way that I was going about it. But so, mm-hmm. yeah, these, these seemed to have been, I don't think there's anything particular for these. Uh, so we're, we're fortunate to have people who have stepped in and, and made good scores for them over the years. Yeah, yeah, and then the uh, the t- first two films, um, Underworld and, and Last Command, have uh, uh, kind of a kind of more I don't know uh, innovative, maybe a little bit more artistically forward uh, scores from the Alloy Orchestra, which I think is just like three guys, and and they use a variety of instruments, including junk, <laughs> as they put it, uh, which is kind of like percussion uh, of different you know, industrial equipment and supplies and things like that. I, I really like all of the scores. Um, the, and then for the, uh, for the docks of New York, there's a piano pieces, uh, composed by Donald Sosen, who's a great, you know, uh, contemporary musical accompanist of silent film, but it also has some vocal tracks, which were interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, kind of a, you know, surprised me a little bit. I'm not used to that. And, Sometimes it worked really well. I, I didn't particularly care for the vocal accompaniment at the very end of Docks of New York. I, I really felt like just more of an instrumental outro would have been more effective. But, you know, the, the way they used um, some of the traditional tunes, uh, Ain't We Got Fun and Today's My Lucky Day and and uh, things like that, I, you know, it, it was just kind of an interesting twist, um, but with, with a little bit more mixed results as far as I was concerned. Yeah, I'm glad we have them all. I would flip back and forth yeah. mm-hmm. um, as mm-hmm. I was going through them to see how each one was kind of dealing with the scene. And it's really nice because, again, like I say, I watched these silent the first time. I know that the scores help me. They, you know, they're part of they're part of it. And I know these aren't original, uh, but they did. They do add to the experience in without detracting from it. You know, a lot of times I'm just sitting there and getting swept up in and I'm not paying attention to the music, but because it's there, it's, 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 you know, kind of given a rhythm to the scene that, that I know, yeah. I know because I remember I missed in, in the, the times that I watched these before, you know, sometimes it's hard to, I, I think it's hard to watch a movie completely silently. Um, and I did it with these and glad that I have this option now. Um, I, I did watch them though this time around, fully on the 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 um orchestrated scores 
once. That's the mm-hmm. way that I watched them. And then kind of going back through to review and kind of, you know, hit things. And then I would flip through the scores. So I actually haven't seen them in full with the alternative, um, you know, kind of second track. Uh, so I, but I'm, these are so rewatchable that I, I will have no problem doing that. You know, I, even if right. I sat down today, I'd, I'd still get sucked into these and enjoy that experience. These aren't kind of one and done films that, uh, you know, maybe maybe I'll watch it again in twenty years. These are these are ones that I can uh, really really dig and get into probably at any time. Well, and they're they're also nice and short. I mean, you're not yeah, you're not yeah. asking for, for a huge time commitment. I think uh, Docs of New York is like seventy five minutes. It's almost like a, a kind of a short story, you know. And it and again, they're just so full of of beautiful moments that uh, yeah, I I absolutely will re. Uh, you know, checking these out periodically and sort of kicking myself that that that, that DVD set sat in my shelf for ten years before I ever actually got around to it. <laughs> well, you know? I'm glad you did. But now. Uh, I mean, yeah. that's that's really yeah, fun. Yeah, absolutely. So right. this came out after mm-hmm. you were through the silent era in your in your Criterion oh, Reflections, yeah. clearly. Um, yeah. So it, so yeah, it, I'm glad it, we're doing this because this is a good a good opportunity to to go back and hit some of those spots that that uh, you know I know you fill a lot of those in. Um, yeah. as the, as the discs come to you and, and, and you, you know, you don't, it's not like you're all chronology all the time. Um, no. but this is, this is but. just, this was a, a pleasure to, to go through these kind of on, on your, your first go around. And certainly not like I was steeped in them. I watched them several years yeah. ago once, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but also yeah. I guess in the context, you know, here's what comes next. He's going to have some more ups and downs in Hollywood and then go back to Germany where he makes the blue angel famously with Marlena Dietrich and they come back and there's the, you know, there's a nice preamble to the, to the other box set with von Sternberg and uh, in the Criterion Collection, um, but I I do think I want to make sure people know this is not like a, a lesser than or a, or just a preamble or a prologue to you know what what really is a, a more famous and uh, you know probably more interesting as far as history goes um, box set with the Dietrich Sternberg, von Sternberg set. Uh, but this is this is something that should stand on its own. Um, before we go, do you want to talk about the box itself? The box, you know, the this yeah. this product that well, you can go and pick up or or get sure. shipped to you. Um, yeah, go ahead. Well, okay. Well, yeah. I mean, I think the fact that these three films are packaged together makes a lot of sense. I mean, I I, I don't know that they would have been as successful as individual solo releases, even though I I really love and admire all three of the films but i think they make a very nice package i think it was a smart decision on criterion's part just to say let's just go ahead and capture this uh, kind of tail end of the silent era uh, and this brilliant you know uh, visionary director uh, with these three films it's a gorgeous set you know again i've already remarked on the on the book it's uh, in, in both the blu-ray and dvd editions you know nearly 100 pages long Lots of beautiful, you know, inserts, uh, you know, stills from the from the production of the films. Uh, great, great uh, yeah, essays on on each of the films, as you would expect, and then the the extras being the um, in, including some some nice background on the scores and some interesting uh, information from the composers there. But then you get the Ben Hecht underworld treatment. Uh, that's about thirty some pages, and then uh, that that very amusing um, 
excerpt from von Sternberg's biography. So, you know, it's just a it's a nice object. It, it fits good in the hand. I mean, that's I did read the the DVD version of the book, just a little bit larger format. So I appreciate that. And then the you know the the slip cases, each of them kind of iconic still images featuring the male leads from those films. Clive, uh, what was this name? Was it Clive Brooks? Clive Brooks. Uh, yeah. So, so he he's Rolls Royce in Underworld. So he's kind of the the supporting character. But uh, George Bancroft gets his uh, close up in in the docks of New York, and then of course a very harrowing portrait of Emily Yannings as the last command. So again, nice uh, digipack slip cases. Well, you know, the, you know the chapter credits, the inserts, and all of that. Just. Very, very handsome uh, object. And and then, of course, uh, von Sturdenberg himself on the cover. Uh, did you get a chance to watch the, the Swedish interview that he yeah. did there and the lighting yeah. thing? You know, so one of, the, one of the simple tricks is that you never have the shadow of the nose touching the upper lip. But right on the very cover there, there's the shadow of <laughs> von Sturdenberg's nose touching his upper lip. So obviously somebody else must have lit that one. <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't but, caught that. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, again, uh, you just get the sense of von Sternberg. I mean, his look, his his demeanor, and and the cover of that box, uh, he's he's got something going on there. He's he's an impressive individual, and uh, again, maybe not. You know, well, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know that he would be such a uh, a bad guy. It sounds like he's you know very authoritarian, authoritative at least uh, on the set. Um, and he says in one speed, he likes to be comfortable when he's making movies. He doesn't care if his actors are not comfortable, but he himself wants to be <laughs> comfortable. Yeah, and uh, just it's just kind of an interesting uh, portrait of this uh, young artist, if you will. Yeah, yeah, and and but I think it's worth saying too that Bancroft does get the cover of the of the book as well. So he does have he does yes. get his mm-hmm. his due there with a quite a striking still for that <laughs> for that book cover yeah yeah <laughs> bullweed yeah. hold up and you know looking out at his doom yeah but it's a nice set i i think it looks it looks great on the shelf um it's it's got that heft you know i'm holding it right now oh, and yeah, kind of yeah. weighing it and it's it's mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. the one that you can dig into the the supplements on the discs are maybe a little bit light and far uh, as far as number maybe what we're used to with some yeah. of these there's basically one supplement per disc uh two of them are video essays and the other one's that uh swedish interview um but i didn't find myself wishing there was something else because if you watch the supplement on the first disc um and and that is the the uh, let's see here, that's the one with a uh, uh, Janet Bergstrom. She gets into mm-hmm. von Sternberg's history. She's kind of more the biographer, you know, giving us mm-hmm. that. And I, I do know that when I was listening to it, I thought I really would like somebody to look at the films too. You know, I don't want just the story behind von Sternberg. I want the analysis. And I think you get quite a bit of that in Tag Gallagher's uh, um, uh, visual essay. It, that's included on the disc of the last command and you get some of that too with the swedish television interview some of the techniques and all of that uh, so i didn't walk away from this thinking oh i really really missed this type of supplement or you know anything like that uh, i i really think it's a full box even if it looks when you you know just count supplements that maybe there's not a lot there but they're each you know they're each a half hour 35 40 minutes and so there's there's a good mm-hmm. amount to dig into 
beyond the films themselves. And then there's uh, several good essays in the booklet. Um, I did. I liked all of those, as well as the, mm-hmm. like you said, the story, the um, the excerpt from the autobiography. Um, there's as well as the pieces on the scores. I mean. There's enough to dig yeah. into here, and, and I, I don't feel like I lacked on the experience of, of that kind of film school in a box, you know, moniker. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, um, the Swedish TV interview also has a fairly lengthy excerpt from The Salvation Hunters, mm-hmm. but if there was one thing I would kind of like to add to that package would be as much of The Salvation Hunters, which was kind of von Sternberg's directorial debut i really would like to see the whole thing if at all possible uh i don't know if that's if that was an option at all or or if there will be some other way of releasing that just because i'm very interested in kind of tracking this guy down to his roots whatever extant uh material may be out there so that would be my only because the the interview is not like a, a nice 2k restoration or anything (laughs) no yeah it's 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 a it's a tv you know clip you know but you know that would you know that's just wishful thinking i don't think this this box set suffers because the salvation hunters Mm -hmm. isn't on it but i do i do wonder um if that would ever be made available maybe there's a disc out there somewhere and i'd i'd definitely consider tracking it down if it was a at a reasonable cost but that that might be the one thing that could have you know buffed this up even higher still i think this is a pretty close to essential uh, box set um, if you're at all interested in in silent cinema and and why wouldn't you be i think this is a this is a great great piece here all right well david i think that we did it i think that we i have, think so uh, yeah. have put uh an episode one together <laughs> and it's been delightful it's under yeah. the belt yeah of course you know do we want picking right up again yeah. do we want to tell listeners what we have at least talked about doing next or just kind of leave that up in the air and and show up again in the feed what are your yeah. thoughts throw it out there we can always change our minds if something comes up but yeah. Yeah, what, are your, what are your ideas uh the next one that we've kind of said okay let's do that one next is the apu trilogy by satyajit mm-hmm. ray um which is i mean I, I think those are i'll just give you a quick thing here david those are like yeah. top tier all-time favorite films each one of them so very excited for that um hope listeners if they haven't picked it up you know might pick it up and join us in that but uh if not we'll try and do some encouragement in our next episode so yeah i'm i'm totally excited i mean i did have a chance to see all the films in oh, the i remember theater. that theater remember you yeah, saying that in, out, out in detroit and uh and I haven't really delved into the box set itself. I've watched a little bits and pieces of it here, but I'll definitely be super happy to revisit those films. And uh, that is a, an incredibly epic, heroic uh, feat, an accomplishment by the Criterion Collection. So we'll, uh, we'll happily get into that soon enough. Excellent. Well, listeners, we'll see you then. From me, from David, thanks for joining us and look forward to more episodes in the future.